You're listening to The 66, a podcast about the Bible, where we survey the books of the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser. Andrew Kingsley is with me today, and we are going to finish up, Lord willing, uh, 2 Timothy by talking about 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, this is a good chapter. I know, you know, going through school, we made reference to this chapter all the time. I'm sure, Andrew, you had classes like that as well. Yep. Um, if you're studying to be a preacher, this is a passage that you talk about a lot. Also, there's a lot about end times here, and then there's some really interesting name dropping going on at the end of the letter. So I think we're going to have fun today talking about 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, Andrew, I want to let him come in here and do our reading for us as we begin this episode. Um, how do you? What is the main theme of this chapter, Andrew? I would, well, I'd say it's what you just mentioned with preaching, you know, kind of the job of a minister. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with that. Really, I think verse 5, and I know verses 1 and 2 are the, I don't know what the the poster child, I guess, if that's appropriate here. Right, especially the phrase, preach the word in verse 2. Yeah. That's, you know, what most people say is the key verse. Yeah. But I think you're going to take issue with that and say that... Well, I'm not going to take issue with okay. it. I think that is a key verse, but I think it kind of falls into something mentioned by another verse that also you know, may be a little bit more comprehensive of a summary. Maybe. I mean, uh, verse 5 says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I think that's a really good summary for the whole letter. Yeah, I do too, because... Preach the word, we just think of pulpit work. Right. And there's so much more on Timothy than just that one thing. And I think it is covered by verse 5. I, I, that That's a great key verse and as far as I'm concerned. Cool. Yeah, because he's got the do the work of an evangelist. Mm-hmm. And certainly that's the idea. We talked about this, I don't know if it was the last episode or a few episodes ago, about how the minister serves as a herald you yeah, know, how they stand up and they teach because of that word uh, "kerux," which yeah. had to do with the town crier or yeah. whatever. Yeah, that's yeah. the word used in verse two for preach the word. It's the same one. So, you know, there's verse five. I think if you can get a good grasp of verse five, you've got a grasp of the entire. Is it too much to say first and second Timothy? Because there's the, there are those themes that we've seen being sober minded, which has to do with all the myths and the. Vain mm-hmm. keeping your focus, yeah, vain, yeah, vain jangling of your keys. Um, and then also endure suffering. We've talked about suffering. Matter of fact, which week was it where, um, one of the main ideas was endure suffering as a good soldier? That was two, chapter two, chapter two. yeah, mm-hmm. second Timothy. Um, and then we have do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry is a great catch all for everything, right? So that's the main idea of this chapter. I want to fly through a really quick outline of the chapter. It's really short. It's only 22 verses. But it is good to keep in mind what's going on here. This is the last chapter of this second letter to Timothy. Paul is getting near to the end of his life. So this last chapter really has a solemn and serious tone to it from the beginning. Uh, One commentary uh, written by Linsky, uh, he gives this quote here to start off this section during this chapter. He says, this is the last word. It is surcharged with the profoundest emotion. 
question. You made up some words there. That was exactly what I was about to say. Is profoundest a word? Wouldn't it be the most profound? Uh, or is profoundest an actual That's a profound term? question. Look I don't know. I'm pretty sure profoundest... If it if it is a word, know. it's been taken out of circulation. Yeah, I think so. And you, so you thought that that quotation was the best quotation you could find for this chapter. Yep, profoundest. Okay, it was the profoundest quote I could find. <laughs> I just uh, put it yeah. in there because I wanted to ask you about that. Okay. Um, Can you outline the chapter for us? <laughs> well, that's actually all. No, I got it. Um, okay, so. First of all, you have Paul's charge to Timothy, which is in verses 1 through 8. And this charge, like we said, is something that's very solemn. Uh, verse 1 says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. That word for charge uh, translates really into testify, warn, insist, or affirm solemnly. And it's made even more serious by the authorities to which he is appealing. Uh, God and Christ Jesus. And then he even goes on to define a little bit more, talking about how Jesus is the judge and also by his appearing in his kingdom. So it's a very serious thing he's asking him to do. Uh, like we said, he is asking him basically to fulfill his ministry based on those things in verse 5. First of all, do the work of an evangelist, which involves verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He also tells him to be sober-minded, and this is something we've seen a lot from First and Second Timothy. Um, you see it here in verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Um, in contrast to that, Timothy is supposed to be sober-minded. He's supposed to be thinking clearly. He also tells him to endure suffering. Verses 6 through 8, Paul talks, so he refers a little bit to his current situation in prison and his approaching death. Verse 6, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved is appearing. And there's that word appearing again, which I think we'll talk a little bit about mm -hmm. in the next section. So it tells him to endure suffering. And then there's the whoa, catch all. Whoa. Um, I found a neat little outline for verses six through eight. Okay. Yeah. The suffering part. Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't original with me. I think I got it from Warren Wearsby. Uh, but he said in verse six, Paul looked around. You know, he said that, you know, he's looking at his surroundings of prison. The time of my departure has come. Uh, verse 7, he looks back, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And then verse 8, he looks ahead, oh, the yeah. crown of righteousness. I thought that was a good, you know, a little, little outline can be preached or taught, but it fits in with what you said, that that uh, suffering, endure suffering, that's what he's, he's doing. And he's doing it, you could put these two ideas together and say, he's doing that by looking around, looking back, looking ahead. And that's yeah. it, where the endurance comes from, that perspective that he had. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. He's also looking ahead. Well, I don't want to get too far off track, but he's also kind of looking back to his life, right, and looking forward to what Timothy's going to do mm -hmm. after Paul passes on. So there's a lot of really good stuff there. Um, so that's the first big part of the, the final chapter here, Paul's charge to Timothy. 
Then he's going to get into some personal stuff. He's going to give Timothy some requests, and he kind of gives a little report. So we get into these personal matters here in the second place from verses 9 to 18. Uh, Like you said, he drops a lot of names. He mentions the location of a lot of people, names that a lot of folks will recognize be Titus, Luke, Mark, Tychicus from uh, from the book of Ephesus. There's a lot of names you'll remember, you'll recognize, uh, but I would just want to give you some of the things that he asks from Timothy. Just a few bullet points. Number one, he asks him to come soon. See that in verse nine. Do your best to come to me soon. He's going to mention that again in verse twenty-one, saying, "Come to me before winter," so you can get an idea of maybe what time of year it is. Winter is getting close because he wants Timothy to get there before the winter, and to do that, he has to come soon. So, number one, come soon. Number two, he tells him to bring Mark. Uh, Verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, what exactly he was going to have Mark do, maybe we can discuss in the next section. Um, But either way, he wants him to bring Mark. And this next thing is particularly interesting to me. I definitely want to revisit. In verse 13, when you come... Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also bring the books and above all the parchments. So Timothy, on top of bringing Mark to him and coming soon, he also has to bring this cloak, some books, and parchments. And then finally in verses 14 and 15, he tells him to watch out for this guy named Alexander. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And then he goes on to repeat a few things. I think we read at the beginning of this book about how at Paul's first defense, no one came to stand by him. Um, But those are all the action items that Paul gives to Timothy. There's some other things in there, but just for the sake of outline, those are the action items that Timothy gets from Paul. Really personal stuff, kind of maybe surprising to read in scripture. You see someone asking someone to run some errands but basically you have yeah. Paul asking Timothy, hey, get this, get this, get this, and then meet me here. Yeah. Well, it reminds us that we are reading a letter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the kinds of literature we study is important. We need to know if we're reading a letter or a history, law. Um, this is obviously correspondence with Timothy. That doesn't mean it doesn't right. do us any good, but... You know, it it helps us interpret it better if we look at it as a letter. Yeah, very personal. And then in the last place, we have this final greeting, which is customary. Uh, In a lot of of Paul's letters, he closes them like this, especially in one so personal. But basically... um, Now, in your opinion, is he greeting people who are at present in Ephesus? Yes. Is what we... Our best guess? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, he's... Timothy, this is going out to Timothy in Ephesus, so we assume if he's telling Timothy to greet certain individuals, they're in the church where Timothy is preaching at that current time. Correct. Uh, And some of those people are Prisca and Aquila, names you might recognize. Another name we should recognize from the beginning of this book is Onesephorus. Mm-hmm. Is that how we said that in the first episode? I think so. Close enough. That guy that starts with the O in verse 19. Onesephorus. Um, yeah, two, one ciferous. Not to be confused with two ciferous. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. No, I think it's, uh, what'd you say, anaciferous? Anaciferous. It's close enough. Mm-hmm. Tomato, potato. 
Uh, and then in verse 21, the key here is he reminds him to come soon again to come before winter. So the last words of this final correspondence that we have between Paul and Timothy, uh, perhaps Timothy made it to Rome and got to speak with Paul and give him a final, you know, have a, have a final talk with him before Paul was ultimately poured out as the drink offering, like we read in verse 6. But in a nutshell, chapter 4, Paul's charged to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Then also gives him some personal requests, and then we have the final greeting. So we'll come back in just a... Drew, do you have anything to add real quick? Not at all. Okay, I didn't want to hijack the end of this, but I'm going to now. Uh, We'll take a break, and we'll come back and dig a little bit deeper. Second Timothy chapter 4 is known for the job description of a preacher. And that's that's how I heard it taught my whole life, especially in college when you know I was taking these classes on preacher and his work or um, more some of the more practical classes or classes on 1st 2nd Timothy and Titus. Uh, we see here is what this is what most people say is the clearest job description of a gospel preacher. And it's mostly all in verse 2, but like you said, there's more later. So preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. That means whenever, when it's popular, when it's not popular. Uh, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. What do we always hear on that? Two-thirds of preaching is negative. That's when I've heard, you know, because reproof is correction, rebuke is as kind of a harsher uh, chastisement of some kind, and then um, exhort is like encouraging. I don't think Paul meant to divide up our time with that. I think he was just giving the spectrum of what is included in the public proclamation of the gospel. Can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah, that's what that's what we're here about for. About that reprove and rebuke. Mm-hmm. Would you say reprove is like saying you shouldn't do that, and then rebuke rebuke is like saying. You shouldn't have don't done do that. that. Or yeah, you shouldn't have. Why'd you do that? Don't um, do it again. Is that? I, I see. Part of the close? problem I have with the whole two thirds argument about negative preaching is, I don't really know that there's a whole lot of difference between reprove and rebuke. You know, this is a, like we said bit. in the first segment. This is a letter, and when people write letters to each other, they use idioms and figures of speech. And I think Paul is just saying, do all the preaching, not just the easy part, but the difficult part as well. I don't see a huge difference between reprove and rebuke. Yeah, I think you're right. Maybe one's uh, just a little more in do you, direct. Or do you in, want me to do both with you? I could reprove you. It's all right. You could and you know rebuke you, and we could see how how you feel afterwards. Which, uh, which can we bring in a guess for that? Um, who you got I'm in mind? Very sensitive. <laughs> I don't know. I think we just need to move on. Okay. Um, complete... Sharon's the only other person here, and I don't well, think that'd be very nice. No, yeah. it would not. Um, but I, I agree with you, just real quick. I do agree. I'm not, I'm not sold on the fact that you know preaching, like every time you write a sermon, make sure it's two thirds negative and one third <laughs> or do positive uh, or do you know one su- Sunday number one you do reproof, the next Sunday you do rebuke, 
And then yeah. the next one you exhort and then start back over again. Yeah, I could I could definitely see a lot of people scheduling days to lay out of church. Right. right. That way. Oh, today's I, I think, Sunday. Yeah, I mean, he's he's telling him telling that, him. you know, some preaching has to be negative and uh, some positive as well. And yeah. he says to do that, do that with complete patience and teaching. Complete your teaching. Yeah. Complete your patience as you teach. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard, you know... Sometimes to be patient, but if if everybody got this immediately, and there was nobody challenging God's word, and there were there was nobody violating God's word, we wouldn't need preachers. Yeah, I mean, so we shouldn't be surprised or complain that it takes a lot of patience to do this job. Yeah, because if it didn't, we would be unnecessary. I would think. To, yeah, to some extent. Uh, and then we get into the part that you were describing a while ago about the focus that is needed, and uh, that's going to come up in application. I'm saving some of my comments for that. Mm-hmm. And then verse 5, you know, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So there are some key terms in here, preach, and like you said, on another episode we talked about the word kerux and how preach has to do with, you know, um, being clear. Mm-hmm. Um, being uh, people being able to hear you and also being truthful about the message that you're representing. Yeah. So do that. Pre- don't just preach anything. Preach the Word, meaning the Word of God. Uh, the other two terms that I think are key to this is evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist, yeah. which has which tied into the gospel, and we would call that personal work or personal evangelism or or doing revivals and meetings and Things geared towards bringing people to Christ and um, bringing folks who are not Christians into the body of Christ through the gospel. And then ministry has to do with your service. Timothy, fulfill your ministry. These are big terms that can include a lot of things. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Andrew, but what I'm seeing here is a lot of teaching and preaching and encouraging and not a lot of the things that we typically think a preacher should do day to day. Visiting. Yeah. Um, you know, meetings, yeah, yeah, administration, yeah. business <laughs> affairs, yeah. benevolence. Those, those kinds of things that a lot of us spend our days doing in addition to studying the Word and preaching the Word. Yeah. Those things aren't in here, and that doesn't mean they shouldn't be done by the preacher and it doesn't mean that they're not mentioned in other passages. I'm not real. I can't come up with one right now that that describes that kind of work as a preacher's work. But I can think of you know numerous uh, passages that talk about you know elders doing some of these things we usually do, yeah. and deacons doing some of these things we usually do, and, and any were you about to say yeah, every yeah. member? That's exactly what I was which, about to say. As a preacher, we are a member. Yeah, and, uh, I think we have to be careful not to not make the minister like pay him to be a professional Christian. Yes. You know? Yeah. Because I think sometimes that's kind of what we expect out of them. You know, if we go in the hospital and, and again, I'm not trying to take any responsibility off of a minister right. to go to the hospital. Yeah. I'm putting pressure on everybody else to go because when someone goes in the hospital, you know, the person sitting there waiting on the minister to come by and they're perfectly happy if the minister comes by and nobody else comes by. 
Mm-hmm. And if, even if other people come by, but the minister doesn't, they still get their feelings hurt because the minister didn't come by. Yeah. And you this know, is some people, you know, yeah. don't want to paint with too broad a brush. And you I know a lot of people who right. wouldn't feel that way. But. Yeah. Thanks for catching me on yeah, that. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> this reproof. is something. That's I, reproof, not rebuke. For reason, yeah. <laughs> for reasons that you've already explained, I was, I was a little nervous about bringing this up because how can you and I be objective being preachers? Yeah. And. I don't want people to think that we're trying to be lazy and take visitation off our, off of our job. Yeah, of, I definitely to do. think that's something, that's something that should be done. But like I said, it should be done by everybody. And I don't know that right. you know, the now, minister. And you can, uh, you know, you can weigh in on this. I well, I want to, I want to admit that we have more opportunities to do these types of things because of the nature of our work and because of the church's support. Yeah. So we're not spending from eight to five every day doing a job that's not related to the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, that does give us more freedom and opportunities to make visits and pray with people and yeah. do uh, you know counseling and and administrative stuff and running errands for the church and yeah. handling benevolence calls. I, I realize that I'm sure you realize that too, and yes. I I count that a great privilege and joy to be able to be free during the day to be with a family or to visit. I enjoy that kind of work immensely. Yeah. And so some of the things that I've been told and taught to justify this as something the preacher does is that what the old adage, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Yeah. And so you, you visit and you connect with people, and then when they come and sit in the pew on Sunday, they're more willing to listen to you than some guy they only see standing up in front of them and telling them what to do. Yeah. So I hear that. And then also, um, you know, the the other thing is what we've mentioned already. Well, this is something every Christian to do. And I've heard a lot of preachers say, I don't go to the hospital because I'm a preacher. I go to the hospital because I'm a Christian. And I, I get that, but also... I don't know. The, now I'm starting to get... Well, depending little... on what... Okay. I think you would say, if I go to the hospital at like 9.30 on a Tuesday morning, you know, I go because I'm a Christian, but also because I'm a preacher. Right? Yeah, because you're not, you're not doing a job outside the church that wouldn't let yeah. you do that. Yeah, but, you know, I, I mean, I think it's both, and I do understand what you're saying. Um, but, you know, I'd, I think it is important... For us to understand that, you know, the encouragement and the visiting when we're sick and, you know, feeding people when they're hungry and clothing people and don't have clothes, all those things have been, you know, we've been taught by Jesus. Every Christian does that mm-hmm. for everybody. And certainly as people that are employed or supported is really a better word. People that are yeah, supported yeah. to do this kind of work. You know, I don't think Paul sat up in his tent that he built and said, hey, look, I'm not going to make a hospital visit. Uh, I'm not going to see so-and-so in their house because they're sick because I'm just here to study and yeah. I'm just going to study and go walk around and preach. And, I'm, you know, I don't think Paul did that, certainly. Uh, no. I do think that's part of it. But like, I do think we need to make sure we recognize that this is something for everybody and that we don't want to... We don't want to support a minister just to be a professional Christian. Yeah. Because there's no such thing. That's the takeaway. Yeah, Yeah. that's the takeaway, is that preachers must not lose 
sight of their main job when they have the hat, the preacher hat on, whatever, you know, when they're playing the role of a preacher, which is to evangelize, to preach the word, to fulfill the ministry, which some people would include all these visits and other jobs under that word ministry maybe. But yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here to Timothy. He is very concerned about false teaching and myths and people with itching ears looking for preachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And so he's saying to Timothy, don't neglect your preaching and teaching. You must continue to teach the truth even when it lands you in jail like it has me. Yeah. Don't, and he's not, it's a priority thing. But yeah. preachers should, as all Christians, use the opportunities God has given them to be the kind of Christian they've got the opportunity to be. Make those visits, pray with people, yeah. and uh, inspire others to do the same kind of thing. Yeah. And so, you know, we have read a lot of be a good example to Timothy. You know, Paul doesn't just say preach. He says also live like a Christian lives. Yeah. Set yourself as an example. And uh, I think we need to move on because there's some other really interesting stuff in here. And yeah. I don't think I'm in trouble yet. So if no, you stop now. You want to stop. Well, mm -hmm. man, I was about to ask you something well, about that. Oh, yeah, I remembered it. Yeah. If you got just maybe You almost seconds. said if you got time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I got So. The question is, do you think, so you mentioned Paul, you know, maybe didn't have all those other things about ministry in mind. What he had in mind was the itching ears and all these things. Do you think there is something to be said for how fulfilling your ministry might mean something a little bit different for everybody that serves in this capacity? So do you think fulfilling your ministry might have been slightly different for Timothy then maybe it was for Titus, or maybe it was for Peter uh, in Jerusalem, or other that's men. A, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, I, I do think because the, that the is bottom true. line is the same, right? Preach the word, do all these other things, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. But I think you know when you said specifically for Timothy in Ephesus at this time, what does completing that ministry involved. Well, completing that ministry involves make, you know, helping as many as he could steer clear of all those myths to reprove and rebuke the people who were teaching those myths and to bring everybody to a knowledge of the truth, right? Yeah. That's kind of completing in this context, that's completing that ministry. Yes. The so another way of putting it is every church has a separate set of problems. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's and right. sometimes the problem is the preacher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which may be the case here. Believe it or not. Uh, yeah. All right. So I want to talk about the return of, of Christ because it's mentioned twice here. Yep. But it's mentioned in terminology we normally do not use. I think we're all aware of it, but we don't use it. It's, the term we usually use is the second coming. Uh, the second coming translated from parousia in the Greek, which has to do with the arrival of a, a king, the sudden arrival of a king who uh, has returned to his uh, people. And uh, we, we use that almost exclusively of Christ's return. Appearing, I don't hear that used a whole lot. And it's used here in verse 1. Um, 
who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Um, and then verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, didn't you tell me that the Greek word there is related to epiphany? Yeah, that's where we get epiphany. So the language that he is using is similar to you. You know, you're you're uh, just sitting there and something just dawns on you. Suddenly, unexpectedly, without notice. An idea or whatever. Yeah. That's what we mean by epiphany. Uh, what is meant here is that Jesus will just suddenly appear. Which is a little different. Maybe maybe this isn't interesting to other people, but it's interesting to me because it's like, you know, as the Bible said, as the Bible says, he is with us always. Matthew twenty twenty. No, twenty eight twenty. Matthew twenty eight twenty. Lo I'll be with you always. But he's invisible to us. So we don't see him, though we know he is with us in some sense. Yeah. But suddenly, upon his return, he will appear. He will cross the boundary that lies between the seen and unseen and suddenly manifest himself. Yeah. Uh, coming makes me think of a long journey. He's on his way. He's on his way. There he is. He's coming in the clouds. Mm-hmm. But appearing makes me think of just, you know, suddenly just manifesting himself. Yeah. There is like a. You know, I actually never thought of that sudden nature of it before. Uh, but it's in the Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which we'll mention here in a minute, in a minute actually. Um, but this word is used a lot dealing with light. It deals with almost exclusively, it deals with God when God is doing something. Uh, in Psalm 118, verse 27, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. To shine is that word uh, for epiphany. So it's this idea of making it visible. And it's really interesting when you think about the fact that Jesus is called the light of the world. Mm-hmm. So his appearing is also uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and in Titus chapter 3, that appearing refers to his first appearance. So when he came, uh, you know, as John 1 opens, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the light of the world. Uh, There's that idea of shining, of revealing. In Acts 27, 20, it's used about the sun and the stars um, in that big storm when when you could not see them. They did not shine. Mm -hmm. It's the same word. Uh, so it's really this idea of, of light being able to see, making something visible. It also carries the weight. There's three things. The first one was light. The next thing is it carries the weight of something that is undeniable or indisputable. It's used in Acts 2.20 in Peter's sermon when he's hmm. talking about the day of the Lord coming and all the things that will happen. Uh, it carries this weight of being something that is unmistakable. And then finally, it carries the weight of glory. And this borrows from that imagery about light. The emphasis is on the glorious appearing of Jesus. And in Titus chapter 2, I'll go ahead and read that. Uh, Titus 2 verse 13, um, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Mm-hmm. So that's the uh, appearing is that same term. And I, yeah, and I want our listeners to recognize that that's the second coming. Yeah. That's the return of Christ. Because uh, every time you see this word just about in connection with Jesus in the future, it, it has to do with Christ's return. Yeah, if we're waiting for his appearing, that's yeah. definitely the second coming. Uh, and we might have an opportunity to talk about that further when we get to Titus. But uh, let's go on to Mark because uh, okay. this is really interesting from chapter 4, verse 11. Luke is with him, uh, and then he says to Timothy, he says, Get Mark and bring him, uh, because he's very useful to me for ministry. Which Mark is this? This is John Mark of Acts 15. There can be no doubt. Okay. All right. Now, in case our listeners don't remember the story in Acts 15, at the completion of the first missionary journey... Paul and Barnabas start getting their bags packed and getting ready for their second missionary journey. And naturally, Barnabas, who was a cousin of Mark's, uh, he wanted to give... Wait, to I skipped something important. Uh, in Acts 13, while Paul and Barnabas are on the first missionary oh, journey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark deserted them. He left. Just He got... We don't know why. When they were in Pamphylia, right? Right. Uh, we don't know why it doesn't say out of respect for Mark, probably. He was young, maybe too immature for this, got in over his head, left. That didn't sit well with Paul, evidently. Now we come to Acts 15. He and Barnabas, uh, a sharp contention rose between these two men who were good, good friends. They had an argument over Mark. Barnabas wanted to give Mark a second chance to come on the second missionary journey. Paul did not. He said we can't depend on him. And uh, this is a very important mission, and we need dependable people. And it led to a split in the mission team, Barnabas taking Mark to Cyprus, and Silas, a man named Silas, joining Paul to go back to Asia Minor and do some work there. Okay, so that's the history between Paul and Mark. Uh, Evidently, Mark began to be mentored by another person, the Apostle Peter. Uh, there's a couple of interesting things about that. First Peter 5.13, Peter calls Mark his son. Hmm. So if Timothy were Paul's son, Mark was Peter's son. And this is the same Mark that wrote the second book of the Bible. Now, a lot of scholars, there's no proof for this, but a lot of scholars believe, and I don't know if you learned this in school, but I learned that uh, there's, a, I think, the church father Papias, maybe somebody else, claimed that Mark was Peter's um, fellow companion, yeah. travel companion, and also um, he his gospel was influenced by Peter. So when you read the gospel according to Mark, mm. of course the Holy Spirit, as we have already studied, was behind all of this and inspired this. But when you read the gospel according to Mark, you're reading Peter's version of it from what Peter had seen. That's brand new information for me. Well, there's a there's an ancient tradition that goes back maybe third century. I should have looked it up before we got into this, where one guy says that just as if it were true and undeniable. That's really interesting. Though. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I mean, it's an explanation as to why Mark is in there between Matthew and John apostles and then Luke the constant companion of Paul who you know heard a lot of this stuff from yeah from the exposure that he got so um, maybe it's kind of this idea that Mark starts off kind of immature 
mm-hmm. with on that first trip. And then he, over time, through the help of Barnabas and Peter, he gets somehow back in to where Paul's recognizing him as someone that's useful yeah. for his ministry. And, you know, it's just beautiful. At the end of his life, Paul is wanting Mark. And he says something that must have meant a great deal to Mark. He's very useful to me for ministry. Mm-hmm. Very useful. I just think it's a beautiful tale of redemption. Yeah. Um, second chances, forgiveness, maybe even a confession of, I don't know if we can go so far as to say that Paul is confessing that maybe he was wrong about Mark. Because yeah. I, I don't know that he was saying Mark can't do anything. He was just saying Mark can't go on this journey. This is too hard for a man as immature as Mark. Yeah, that's where you kind of wish you had more details. Yeah. There's a sermon I've heard, Mark, the man who came back. So it's pretty... Yeah, that's pretty, interesting. Um, I heard that one time, and a lot of this information, you know, I remember from that, that lesson. I'm really interested about... I just think that's really cool. Like, there's no other word for it. I know it might sound like a 10-year-old saying that, but it is that... You know, you have that relationship between Paul and Timothy, and we think of how much Timothy was a student of Paul. Yeah. And then to think about Mark having that relationship with Peter, and probably also Barnabas, right? Yeah. Uh, having gone on that trip yes. with Barnabas, you know. And Mark, then, Mark surrounded himself with some pretty impressive Christian examples. Yeah. That's, and so if he made mistakes, the way he corrected them by associating with the right kind of people is really impressive. And learning a lot from them. And man, what an honor to be one of the few inspired writers of the Bible, to be used as God's instrument to communicate the gospel the way that he did. Right. Are you ready to move on? Yeah, to let's, let's go to the next thing. So we wish me, we wish that we had more details there. And then in the, the two verses later in verse 13, we get a bunch of details that maybe we didn't need. Right. When you come, get the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and the parchments. Above all. Above the all parchments. the parchments, yeah. So he's not telling us what happened with Mark and Mark's growth, but he is yeah. going to tell us, hey, grab that jacket before you come up here. Yeah. Um, well, he's wanting to get there. He's wanting him to get there before winter. Yeah. So, and he says it twice, doesn't he, about winter? Or well, is that only at maybe I'm verse wrong. 21? Yeah, I want to see the winter in verse 21. Okay. But he does say come soon in verse 9. Okay, yeah. So, for some reason, he wants to come soon, obviously, because winter's coming. So, he asked him to get a cloak. The more important thing there is to kind of track Paul's travels. The important thing is mm-hmm. he was in Troas. But the cloak, um, it's been suggested that this actually could have been a book wrap for the books and the parchments. Now, that's unlikely, but I thought yeah. that was at least worth mentioning. Uh-huh. But it's like you said, it's probably because it's going to be very cold, and that's right. a long, heavy coat. He wouldn't have wanted it when it was hot. And prison conditions there, I mean, I know they're bad in our country, uh, and I, I read and hear about the state of, of the prisons, how they're overcrowded and everything. But mm-hmm. He was probably I, in a hole, probably, right? Yeah, he was in a lot worse situations. They, will give, they don't give prisoners here a whole lot of things, but they have an opportunity to... Get cleaned up and have facilities and to wear prison warm clothing. Yeah, they cold. they're given prison garments, uh, but I don't think Paul, I, Paul had to furnish all of his own stuff, and so that's probably why he's asking for that cloak. For whatever reason, he needs it. Uh, 
the things that were more interesting to me are the books and the parchments. Yeah. And why would he say above all the parchments? Above the cloak, above the books. Get the parchment. Yeah. Um, here's an idea, and I just read this today, so I'm still chewing on it. But here's the idea. Most scholars actually think these books were not for any kind of personal reading or personal study, but they were going to be used as aids in his trial. Hmm. Some some sort of evidence to lay before the court. And the idea is that these are books that will prove that he is teaching a legitimately legal religion. Because I guess they're trying to, the Roman government is trying to peg him for teaching something that's unlawful, mm-hmm. that goes against. And it would later be declared, not in Paul's lifetime, but later when the persecution gets very heavy from the Roman government, Christianity is declared, in English it would be an illicit religion, or right. illegal religion. Yeah. Yeah, that's ex- actually the exact word that that's that commentary probably, used was illicit religion. That's probably the prosecutor's case against Paul. Now, what those books were, that that's all the specifics we get, but the parchments, uh, scholars think that these were the Septuagint. And he would. the idea is Paul would be trying to prove that, hey, if you accept Judaism, why wouldn't you accept Christianity? Here are the Christian documents. And a big bulk of them, or at this time, all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe a few of the letters are thrown in there. Maybe a gospel or two is thrown mm-hmm. in there. Maybe Luke's account is thrown in there. I don't know. But he's going to hand them the Jewish text in Greek, obviously, so these Roman uh, officials can, 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 can read, read it. it. Yeah, it's a translation. It's a yeah. translation. So he really needs those to go into his trial to say, hey, here's the documents that I'm teaching and preaching, I'm preaching Jesus is the fulfillment of those. So what's the problem? And they would have mm-hmm. been particularly important. Um, and I think we need to keep in mind that there weren't any printers yet. And he couldn't just yes. ask Timothy to put it on Google Drive or iCloud right. to where he could get yeah. to it. So it could have been very important for him to have those books, those parchments, instead of trying to borrow one from somebody in Rome or track down one in Rome. I don't know. Why it's important that he had those exact books and those parchments? No, it's a parchment. It's is it animal hide or is it the? Uh, I should a, know this. I don't know what it's made. Is it paper? Is it paper? Yeah, it's paper. It's like a roll, right? It's like okay, a scroll. It's a scroll. Which makes me think that's the made from book. a plant or? I, I couldn't tell you. I don't know what yeah. it's made from. We'll but, tell you when we come back um, in the third segment. It does make it sound stamp. like the Septuagint, though. Yeah, I mean, do you think people argue that about the law books or whatever because it's hard for them to imagine? Well, okay, let me back up. Do you think that theory comes out of the inability for people to imagine Paul not having memorized the entire Bible? (laughs) I mean, you know, the idea that he's getting these for legal defense because here's the way I've always heard it. Again, there's a sermon that I heard somewhere, I can't remember now, read somewhere, but it's called Bring the Parchments. And the whole lesson is about how important the Word of God is in our lives. And Paul's example is brought up here that here is an apostle inspired by God. He's written a lot of the New Testament. He's preached thousands of sermons, converted thousands of people. Mm -hmm. And he's on death row. He's not going to live much longer. 
but he's still trying to grow in his knowledge of the scriptures, or the scriptures are still a great comfort to him, even though he's probably got them all memorized. So if Paul, near the end of his life in a dungeon, is asking for these, can't we take a little time each day to read our Bibles? That's that's the sermon that I've heard. Yeah, and that's the way I've always way understood this. I, I, you know, I think it's an interesting theory, but I also know that Nero, who killed Paul, the the emperor at this time, I, it's it's, I don't know, hard for me to imagine these Romans li- listening to him build a case. But I could be wrong. Yeah. Or it's also hard for me to imagine Paul acting like a lawyer. Um, yeah, and that's that's what I thought. You know, it was Paul saying, you know, the time of my departure is at is at hand. Mm-hmm. But still, bring me this stuff, so maybe I won't have to depart. You know. Yeah that that doesn't go. Yeah, that's a good point. It doesn't go well with verse six. So I don't. It goes well with the circumstances. He's obviously waiting for a trial, mm-hmm. but it doesn't go very well with verse six. Now, here's I, and I know we're probably getting up close to the end of time for this section, but I think this might be why they ask it, because doesn't it seem a little trivial to be in an inspired letter? To just say, hey, grab these books I like to read and grab this coat. Which leads to this next question. Uh, what does this say about, and I know we talked a lot about inspiration last week. Yeah. But does this give us any kind of, does this inform our discussion on inspiration of Scripture? This fact that we have kind of like a to-do list from Paul and people mentioned specifically by name. Does that give us any insight into how inspiration works. I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. might say, well, inspiration, this is supposed to be some timeless truth that applies to every Christian ever, but do your best to come to me soon does not apply to me. Uh, You know, get Mark and bring him with you does not, like, I'm not going to go get Mark and take him to Rome to see Paul. No, but listen to all the great things that we've, we've learned from this. I mean, Demas in love with this present world that's an important lesson. Get Mark. That's an important lesson for the yeah. history when we put together put together the the history. Luke alone is with me is one of the I don't know, it's a touching statement. Mm-hmm. One of the most touching statements in all the Bible. Um and bring the books and the parchments if though if that's scripture there's a lot to learn from that. Yeah. And even the coat maybe informs you of yeah. his prison imprisonment. Um yeah, and he goes into, you know, his first defense and how nobody came and the Lord was there and strengthened him. So, inspiration so not is not... Those little things are not just worthless little... No, I don't think that they are. milk before you get here. You right. Know, I mean, he, he's in books and parchments. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, it's it. there's a lesson on priorities there. What was most important to Paul? The parchments. His Christian brothers, the cloak, the books, the parchments. He was yeah, content well, in whatever circumstances he was in. You know. Um, okay, so we're going to look up parchment, which I think I'm going to say, we'll see who's right. Here, I can look it up. I'm going to say it's animal hides. Now we're going to take a break and we're going to look it up. Okay, take a break. And then uh, give you a few lessons to take home. Oh.
Bartimaeus made his animal hide. Right. Yeah. So we come back. We almost forgot about that. What'd you guess that it was? Plants? I said everything. And I think right before the bell rang, I said animal hide. Animal hide? Yeah. You were right. Okay. Particularly calfskin. Okay. So what about verse 20? I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. So sometime when we talk about spiritual gifts and the use of that, the purpose of that, I'd like to come back to that verse. Don't have time to do it today, but if if miracles are just to heal the world, and if healing is the point of miracles, why didn't Paul, the miracle worker, heal Trophimus? Why didn't he Good heal question. Epaphroditus in Philippians 2? Yeah, yeah, he almost you know, died. That's an interesting question. And, and the answer to the question is, Miracles are not just to make sick sick people well. Miracles are to confirm and reveal the Word of God. Yeah, That's what they're for. But, you know, let's get into really some good. lessons now. Man, I feel like we should be done for that. That was good. Right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us. No, yeah. you, you got some things, right? Here's one, and there's so many here, but this is one I thought of uh, earlier today. It says to preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season. And, you know, I think the idea there certainly is, you know, in times when it's favorable and times when it's not favorable. Mm-hmm. But is the word ever really out of season? Well, like in the, it, in the sense that, like verses 3 and 4 talk about, people don't want to hear it. Yeah. I, I think it's more out of season. It's out of season more than it's in season. Yeah. The truth. Is that what you asked me? Kind of. Is there ever is, a time when it's in well, season? I think I'm asking the wrong question, maybe. Because I read in season and out of season. I'm thinking about planting things. And if you plant a, you know, if you plant a, a pumpkin seed now, we're almost into September. It's two weeks late. Now, I, I know this because we were going to plant pumpkins in our backyard. Hmm. If you plant a pumpkin seed right now, it's not going to do anything. Yeah. It's out of season now. Right. Um, you know, I, I read that and I was thinking, you know, there are times when it's more favorable and less favorable. I'm thinking of the parable of the sower. You know, it depends yeah. on where you plant it. But, you know, the power of the gospel is never absent, is what I'm right. trying to say. That, yeah, and that is not what Paul is saying. Right, and I just want yeah. to make that distinction for us. Yeah, I think that's So good. we can't just throw our hands up and say, you know what? These people don't want to hear it. Gospel's out of season. I'll wait right. till spring hits. But what he said, right but he's telling Timothy, don't let that be an excuse. Yeah. If it's very unpopular for you to preach the gospel, you keep preach preaching anyway. the gospel. Um, yeah. and I think in receptive right. fields, fi- fields and in non-receptive fields. Yeah, I think you are right about it's more out of season than it is in season. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe that's not a hundred percent true in Alabama. Well, t- yeah, it depends the, on where you are. Buckle of the Bible Belt, mm-hmm. but you know, I do think uh, the climate of our country as a whole, it's not favorable ground, really. Yeah, maybe so, but that didn't stop the sower and the parable of the sower from actually going out and planting the seed. Mm-hmm. There's some good soil. I think it's a good connection between the instructions there and that parable. Um, okay, and then the next thing I had is this this uh, final little admonition in verse five: fulfill your ministry. Emphasis mm-hmm. on the your. And okay, we already talked about this a second ago. Uh, how it's a different. You know, maybe a little different in every situation for mm-hmm. every person serving in this capacity. Uh, but I'm thinking here of a connection to 1 Corinthians 12, yeah. where everyone has a different role, and everyone has a different 
maybe this is a stretch, quote, ministry, mm -hmm. you know, because what ministry just means to help or to aid, right, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we all have a function in the body, you know, and you hear people say all the time, well, this is my ministry or that is my ministry. Mm -hmm. What we mean by that is we don't mean this is my supported work by the congregation to reprove, exhort, all these different things. Mm -hmm. We mean this is the way I contribute. This is my role in the body of Christ. So I say that to say all of us that read this, no matter what our uh, jobs are, to fulfill our ministry is something that we can all relate to. You know, whatever role that we have, whatever role we have identified, whatever gifts have been given to us, do it. Fulfill it. You know, yeah. do what's necessary to be done. Play your part. Right. I thought of that when you went over that before. The The word your is, is yeah. really important. Um, you know, verse 10 is a powerful lesson. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And it's heartbreaking, but it's also very common for Christians to fall in love with the world after they have been converted to Christ, and that is their downfall. What he means by the world here is Satan's system in opposing Jesus Christ. Same kind of love of the world that you read about in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. So Demas, he made his choice. Uh, we all need to be careful. and We may still be coming to church and be in love with the world, the present world. The, the present culture. It's, it's about making an idol out of the age or the trends of the day. Yeah. Beware of that. That took Demas down. It can take the best of us down if we're not careful. You know, this might be too much of a stretch, but I'm seeing another parable of the sower connection here. Um, yeah. From Matthew 13, 22, the one sown among the thorns. This is the uh -huh. one who hears the word yeah. but the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Right. That's what happened to Demas. I mean, that yeah. was his downfall. Um, so let me just, you know, second Timothy, I want to remind everybody as we wrap this up is the very last chapter of Paul in yeah, the New Testament. Yeah, speaking, yeah. We're going to do Titus next week, and, uh, I think we'll do two episodes on Titus, but chronologically speaking, second Timothy is the last volume that Paul contributes. So it's very... We kind of end this on a somber note, uh, but don't forget the um, expectation and joy of verses 6 through 8. To be able to say, my departure is at hand, but I have I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, there's a crown of righteousness that will be awarded to me, and uh, not just me, but everyone who loves his appearing. So that kind of hope is how this last letter ends. And I just think it's a beautiful thing that yeah. Paul has that faith. Paul's story is such a great story. Yeah. I, mean, I, love, I love reading about Paul's life because mm -hmm. it's, I mean, he totally changes everything about his life, you know, at an, at an older age. You know, he's long enough to be firmly cemented into what he was doing. Yeah. Completely changes, becomes this hero for Christianity. All these 
troubles and trials and and it makes me wonder you know why why there hasn't been more you know uh, media about the life of Paul and obviously because I think it pales in comparison to the life of Christ that's yeah. why but still Paul's story is amazing in its own right and reading through second Timothy this time around just reminded me I yeah think, of this is the, one story. of the most biographical what do we say when we're talking about um, I think it was chapter one um, you know, we said that that it's not necessarily giving us a lot of history of Paul's life and events, but you can see into his character. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that throughout Second Second Timothy, there's just a lot of information about what's going on inside of Paul, what makes him tick. And so it's been it's been a good experience for me to go through it this way. And I'm thankful to our listeners in going on this journey with us. And I hope that you'll continue to stay with us as we get into Titus, because there are some things very similar to first and second Timothy and Titus, but there are also some new concepts that I'm very excited to talk about uh, starting next week. In the meantime, as you wait on that new episode to come out, uh, you can be giving us some feedback on the website, the66.net, or on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, You can email us just any way that you want to get a hold of us. We'd love to hear from you, and uh, we're just thankful for all the encouragement that people have given us and, you know, for this opportunity that we've had for, what, a couple of years now yeah. to do this because it's a lot of fun for us. And two or three years. Let's say two. Two, right. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. It's been good. I, you know, um, it's my way of locking Andrew down. He can't leave <laughs> Asheville Road until we, we get, get done with the 66th book. Yep. And then after that, I got to come up with a clever podcast to, to well, keep them here longer. We just start over, revise it, make it better. Yeah. Go back to our first book. Yeah. But that's it for now. And what's our sign off this week? That's oh, all. Oh, man. Folks. We came up with one last week and we said we we're going to use it every week. Mm-hmm. How about. I think we just said we were going to leave it hanging, like not yeah. finish the sentence. Like we could. 